Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Support for Clever comes from the Polish Cultural Institute New York. Social issues, sense of humor, and observations of everyday life. Meet the female talents of contemporary Polish illustration and design in Polki Hidden Power, an online exhibition presented by Wanted Design NY. Please stay tuned after this talk to hear a special presentation with curator Monica Branch about this exceptional online exhibition on view until December 15, 2020 at wanteddesignnyc.com slash Polki, that's P-O-L-K-I, dash hidden dash power. I realized that I was leading a change. I was leading a community. I was leading this event. I had the position to bring the design topic over the table. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm presenting Design Not Guns, a story of how design is making the world a better place, one street at a time, in the most impoverished, gang-ravaged neighborhoods in El Salvador. Designer Roberto Juarez, founder of Lero Studio in San Salvador, discusses with Jerry Helling, president of Bernhardt Design, how he is helping 10 to 15-year-old at-risk children embrace design rather than gang membership. The program engages young people in the design process to create neighborhood-safe spaces and improve the appearance of their communities. As a result, they are becoming the catalyst for social change, using design as their weapon, not guns. This program was recorded via live Zoom panel in May 2020 as part of Wanted Design Online, a conversation series presented with Wanted Design Manhattan, Clever, and Design Milk in response to this year's COVID-related cancellation of NYC by Design. To see the whole program, visit wanteddesignnyc.com slash online. Now, here's the show. I am delighted to introduce our main speakers, Jerry Helling and Roberto Juarez, in dialogue about design as a catalyst for social change on the streets of El Salvador. Roberto Juarez is a Salvadoran industrial designer, co-founder of Lero Studio, which focuses on human development, and longtime friend and colleague of Jerry Helling, the president and creative director of Bernhardt Design, an international furniture brand with global distribution, an active mentor and champion of the arts. 
I know Jerry has been particularly captivated by the work Roberto is doing in El Salvador. So I'm very excited to hear this conversation. Jerry Helling, take it away. Thank you, Amy. And thank you, uh, Odile and Claire from London for having us here. We're very excited to join you. And I think I said, I'm Jerry Helling, president of Bernhardt Designer. I'm with uh, Roberto Juarez. Last fall, when um, I was in El Salvador to judge the annual um, Contempo design competition, I was lucky enough to get to spend time with Roberto and talk to him about some of the programs he's doing and some of the things he's doing as far as community outreach within the city. And I was, I don't know what the correct word is, captivated, enthralled, obsessed uh, with the work he was doing with high-risk young people in the most dangerous and impoverished neighborhoods and how he was using design as a catalyst to make change. I was so impressed by him and his partner, Leo, that I said, we, we have to share this with a broader audience. More people, more people need to hear about what you're doing. And let me warn you, if um, you are anything like I was, be prepared to, after you hear this conversation, that you're going to want to go out and do more to help people, because that is certainly uh, the way I felt. To get us started and set the stage, I guess, let me ask you, Roberto, tell us a little, a little bit about your background and your personal story. Yes, well, thank you, first, first of all, to all, all of you for this effort and this huge opportunity. Really nice words, Jerry. Um, well, I'm from El Salvador, the smallest country in, in Central America, and I'm the middle son of an engineer and a really skillful craft artist and teacher, and I'm married now. Um, with a talented woman. As a kid, I was really introverted and that helped me to spend my time trading words in my mind. And I was lucky enough to go to a French school as a, as a kid with my brothers, uh, where I had my first startup at the age of 13. Then I went to, to Universidad Don Bosco here in El Salvador. And, and I was in the third generation of industrial designers educated in the country. Then I become a teacher there too, but that's where I met my partner, Leonel, and we realized we were on a priceless context. Um, El Salvador is, is known for its problem, but we'd like to see it that it's full of opportunity, actually. Can you tell us a little bit about the studio you started with Leo and what you guys focus on? Yes, my pleasure. We founded with Leo uh, the Leto Studio back in 2013. Uh, we were still at school and and we found it after we won a, an entrepreneurship competition that gave us money to start. And we've been involved in since then. Uh, it's been a, a mad adventure. Now what we do is we design products locally inspired and crafted in El Salvador. And we also do interior projects where we focus on custom-made pieces that allow us to enhance the, the functionality of flexible spaces according to each client needs. But in the last couple of years, we've been involved in really, really um, rewarding projects um, with a more human-centered focus on this. And in these projects, we were able to empower people with design tools so they can find their own future. You have certainly been one of the people to take up the mantle of continuing the design tradition in El Salvador. The, this movement started... 
I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. And it really started with USAID grant and this larger than life force of nature, incredible woman, Isabel Mason, who brought everyone together and convinced uh, the local business leaders, opinion makers, politicians, that design could be something to create a positive influence in the country, socially, culturally, economically, that design could give something to El Salvador other than the conversation about violence and guns and drugs and gangs. The initial program has spawned a yearly uh, competition with the Contempo, exhibitions in New York multiple times, was really responsible for the creation of the Carrot Concept, the Carrot Design Collective, which was an incredible program, and really spawned some very talented international designers that have become very successful, like Harry and Claudia Washington, Emma Schoenberg, Javier Cristiani of Marco Moderna. And it's kind of interesting to me, this band of people coming together without incredible government support. Why do you think this entire movement has continued through the years when something like a well-funded program, like 100% Norway, has disappeared? Yes, it's exciting, all the results these kind of programs had during the, I think it's 12 years now. It actually opened the doors to a whole new world of opportunities for design from El Salvador. And, and that dream that was achieved from that generation has been shared to younger generations. So I was lucky to be in this next generation, let's say, because I had the chance to meet these professional designers that already been through through a lot of challenges and, and were able to succeed in some opportunities and obviously also to fail in some others. So they shared in knowledge and experience with my generation. And now it's our, our own task to continue their legacy and, and, we, and share the same mindset they share with us with younger generations. You interestingly referred to yourself as one of the baby carrots the other day. <laughs> yes. I, I, I thought that was interesting that uh, <laughs> Harry and Claudia and company are not, are not very old, but they already have baby <laughs> carrots that are moving on in their tradition. The economic situation in El Salvador is it's pretty bleak, actually. It's marred by a lot of poverty, gangs and violence. So I wanted to use you to try to set the stage about what what daily life is like in these more impoverished neighborhoods. And probably most importantly, what's daily life like for a young person? What are their experiences? How do they view the world? Yeah. Well poverty it's a really, really complex problem. I mean there's a lot of way to define this, but one that, that I, I feel really um, get to it is like we can define poverty by the lack to satisfy basic needs. So um, in these kind of neighborhoods, you can find homes with not the correct building materials. They are also usually really overcrowded with more than four people per room. They don't have access to drinking water. The sanitation system is not the right one. And one of the biggest problems is the lack of education that is really linked to a high rate of 
teen pregnancy. There's numbers from the last study that shows that um, 52 women from 10 to 19 years old get pregnant each day in El Salvador. That goes obviously really linked to the education, and that makes the biggest problem um, or sub-problem of this. Because actually when the teen pregnancy happens, nor the mother or the father are ready for that for that situation. So the father usually runs away. The mom gets in average until the sixth grade education. And she had to find a way to survive and give a future to their child. The kids grow and they had to live with their grandmother because their mother has to go out pretty much all day to, to earn money to survive. Sometimes even the whole week out of their houses. So kids grow with their grandmothers. And after school, their only option to go is their home, which is obviously not on the right condition and most likely not appealing for a young kid, right? So the next options they have is to stay at, at the street, to go out, play with a ball, play with their classmate maybe. But that's where the danger really is for them. They are at the mercy of violence and gangs because they don't have a proper place to spend their spare time. Well, thank you. And um, before we start talking about the uh, Flashlight Collective that you guys started specifically, I think you became in, involved in Global Shapers. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that program? Yes. Global Shapers Community, it's an initiative of the World Economic Forum. And it gathers young people from around the globe that are working in um, local issues um, like poverty, for example. And they found me when I was creating these events in my quest to understand what design it's supposed to be in a country like El Salvador. And once I got in in 2014, I realized that I was leading a change. I was leading a community. I was leading this event. I was um, inspiring other people to launch their brands, among other stuff. That opened my eyes that that I was in a unique position as the only um, designer in the shapers. I was allowed, or I actually I had the position to bring the design topic over the table and start solving the problems we, we face through my design context. The shapers actually was shaping me as a, as a leader I became. Well, and it sounds like you were probably shaping them by um, bringing, <laughs> bringing design to the table to a group of people that typically weren't focusing on design as a way to solve problems. Yes. Uh, the project of the color movement is, is another wonderful program. And I believe um, the, the global shapers that you're, or, or the flashlight project that we're going to be talking about is under the umbrella of the color movement is that correct that's correct um actually when we met alight actually and discovered this color movement initiative it aligns perfectly on our quest to see how far we can push design boundaries because they were already working with catholic sisters in the communities supporting families building a stronger communities and creating new opportunities for them in el salvador and mexico and the u.s so in El Salvador, we became their partners, right? So moving into uh, the Flashlight Project, what inspired you to begin in your involvement with these 
particularly troubled parts of the city and focus on uh, young people. Yeah, meeting the the designers from from this program we talked before and meeting a lot of people in in the design shows show us that actually the best thing to do is to help each other. That way we could grow all together. So with Leo, we've always been inspired to help others. Uh, I think that's one of the main reasons why we, we are partners, actually. And we've always been looking ways on how design can be applied in different contexts, right? So when we met the, the communities through Alive and the color movement, we find a, like this golden ticket, this golden opportunity to really go into these really risky um, neighborhoods and bring design to solve the problems they were challenging. So we met the, the kids right there, and that shine even, even more because kids are the key to break the violent cycles they go through. I think that's so true in, in any culture. And uh, a point I find interesting is that you initiated a rather challenging project, and you had to start somewhere. I find it so curious that the Catholic nuns were the ones that kind of held the keys to the kingdom. Yes. Actually, well, violence, as I said, it's really complex that obviously when you're facing that, you don't really know where to start. But once you get to know the communities, you, see, you find these sisters playing a really important uh, role in the growth of the communities. And they don't, don't, don't only work there, but they also live there. They listen, they embrace they share the knowledge and help everyone they can. They are actually making the change the community needs, but it's only one or two sisters for the whole community. They are showing actually an option to a life of violence, and they always see the good on people. They trying to bring peace and unity to them, and that makes them really respected by everyone there, even the gangs. So by keeping that balance and, and inclusion of everyone into this new set of, of, of new way of see life, teaming with them actually was really a smart move because they are the key to go inside the communities. They are already working with the kids and everyone else. So when we partner with Alive, with the sisters, it make all sense and, and allow us to go in safely into the communities, right? Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I wouldn't have, till I heard you talking about this, I wouldn't have thought going to nuns would be the place to start such a project. <laughs> so that's, yeah. that's very interesting. You said the first thing you had to do was that you had to create a space, that that was the, the key element to get this underway was creating a space. Why was that so important? When we start talking with the sisters and the kids, we realize that these young kids from 10 to 16 years old, which are the age where they get recruited by the gangs, they didn't have a place to meet and be themselves and, and enjoy their age. Um, they want to learn things and a lot of different things that they weren't allowed at their houses because they were too small to, to be all together. And also the next option will be on the street, but they cannot be there all day and without being at mercy of, of violence, right? So you didn't have a, a secure space to enjoy this spare time. 
So obviously that makes the, as a designer, we saw this opportunity to create a safe physical space for them, but we saw it and we took the challenge to not make just a safe space, but also a space where they could share from each other. They could learn and connect with their peers. And it's really important that they can feel they can thrive there and, and, and that they're being part of something positive because they feel they don't belong to nowhere. At their houses, they're just a kid that most likely wasn't wanted. So they don't feel shares there. And here they can belong to somebody rather than to belong to these gang members, right? That this is really amazing. That's a beautiful part of the story of yeah. of needing to create a space so that the good club can exist. You've exactly. got a, you've got a good clubhouse where kids that really want to try something different they can go and meet and be with peers who feel the same way. When you started this, your first approach was to actually take the young people outside of the community for educational experiences. Is that right? That's right. Um, As a designer and with Leo, we've been practicing this on a system thinking methodology. So we find really easy to connect the dots. So based on our experience with the design programs, um, we were in contact with the design supporters, we can say. And we have the contact with the Museum of contemporary art in Navarra, which is called Marte. And we find easy, like, the first step can be to bring these kids that are really creative in their own way to this museum that they feel really apart, that they feel the whole city doesn't belong to them, even if they are also as Salvadorians as the rest of us. So we were able to bring them to the museum so they can explore art. And luckily... We were surprised by them when they decided to sponsorship a 16-week program for the kids uh, at the museum with some artists as teachers for them. And they were able to explore values, commitment, and feelings in a whole spectrum that they're not used to. Um, and they were doing it through art. So they were able to explore the paint, collage, and different other techniques that obviously allows them to reimagine what they can do, right? So also since that time of the year was happening, the, the exhibition of Contempo's uh, Biennale, and I was part of the coordination team, uh, I was lucky to be able to give them a guided tour to the exhibition. And, and we talk about each piece and what the inspiration was for each designer. And they were really eager to understand how a Salvadorian with local craft that they are used to, like woodworking, they could transform through design these materials into something more um, functional and, and visually attractive. So I believe that that's when the dream for design for the kids started. And, and we even at, at some ideation sessions we have later, the kids were drawing these kind of pieces they saw at the museum. Yeah, I thought it was quite ironic. The week after we were all there for Contempo and spending the week talking about design and celebrating yeah. design, that you were able to bring the kids there and walk through exactly what we had walked through previously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and after, after conducting this program and giving them this exposure on the outside world, 
then you went back to the community and to your clubhouse and you really started the design ideation process of what this was going to look like yeah obviously um this space do we sense when when we get the kids the kids out of the communities and bring them to the to market that it was really easy for them to to feel out of salvadorian context let's say when they were out of their community. So we needed to have a space that they feel that they could feel they were, they belong to. So for that, obviously we did some ideation sessions with the kids to know their dreams and aspirations. One of the biggest insight and really inspiring is that they, all of them, they are really eager to learn and grow as person and professionals, um, not to have success, in life, but to have something to share back to their communities. They all want to, to give back something to their communities. So we understood that these spaces need to allow them to grow as persons and to understand how life works in some way and that they can take their own decisions, right? So we aim to, des to, to design a flexible space where they could feel proud of it and part of it and, and help them build confidence And for that, what we did is that we got inspired from this, from the same community. Actually, we did some several tours around it and we understood that they already had local solutions. So we need to retake those solutions into a more specialized design solution that was aiming to the need of this new space, but something that allows them to feel still in their community, even if it has a different complete look right so the first thing we did is that we transformed the same materials they see every day around it in new things for example the metal grid they use to protect their windows we use it to hang stuff and organize things inside plastic cords they use to hang their clothes or to build some chairs we allow them to dream and them by themselves put the layout on this structure where they can put pictures And that way they can be recognized as part of the, of the new place and the new team they were creating, right? During this process, we also understood that, that they needed to learn how to take decisions because life is made out of decisions, bad and goods, right? So we designed the process to have a small windows for them to decide on how they wanted some stuff. For example, a mural, they decided through um, some guidelines we gave them, how the mural is going to look like. And then we all paint it together. So that makes them feel part of it, obviously, and proud, and they discover new skills. That's fantastic. It must have been really interesting seeing this thing evolve from an empty space into something that had a lot of charm and character. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Whenever I'm in a room with web professionals, I hear a lot of shop talk about Wix Studio. Wix Studio is beloved by both designers and developers because it gives them the quality and flexibility to do exceptional work efficiently so they can do what they do best without the grind and deliver projects on time. Designers love Wix Studio because it combines pure web design with maximum productivity. With intuitive layout tools, designers can create unique layouts with an intuitive grid that allows them to add emphasis and standout style. And they can save entire custom site templates, text themes, color palettes, and components to use them time and again. And developers love Wix Studio because it gives them the flexibility and speed they need to take a wide range of projects end-to-end with code-level control over the front-end and back-end. Devs can either use Wix-made or third-party APIs. Plus, they can work online in a VS code-based IDE or code locally and push changes via GitHub. I may not be an expert in website creation, but I do know a lot about how to design and build, and there is nothing more exciting to the creative process than a well-stocked toolkit that helps me do my best work. To learn more, go to Wix Studio or simply click on the Clever Resources link in the description. You had mentioned before they had a, a real sense of ownership in what they had created. How, how do you think being involved in all of this has uh, changed their outlook about themselves or their outlook about where they fit into the community? Actually, our theory of change was that if they were able to change the inside of a room, most likely they will be able to to believe they can change their own their own context, and that way they can impact in their communities, right? So in the process, um, we designed the furniture, for example, to be modular and to be assembled with the kids. So they learn how to use a drill, they learn how to use the screwdrivers, they know how the the furniture actually were designed. They understood a lot of things they didn't before the process. So this allowed them to take some de- some decisions, like obviously control decisions, but still they made decision and they make it happen. So they learn to do things that makes them more confident. And and obviously, if they discover that they can dream it and they they can make it happen, a whole new future awaits for them, right? Exactly. You you said at one point that some of them were taking it home and starting to, start, oh, yes. <laughs> starting interiors projects within their homes. Yeah, they want to do some shelves. Was, yeah. uh, really interesting. Probably wonder what they let their child get into when they decide to come <laughs> home and start turning the house into an interiors project. <laughs> You've created something absolutely 
fantastic here. One of the questions that I'm probably sure a number of, of us have is, how, how is this going to be sustainable? There's only yeah. so much of you guys to go around. Yeah, I, we believe that teamwork is the best way to go in El Salvador. So as we partner with Allied and the Global Shapers in this project, we already had a program for the year long. Actually, this was before the pandemic situation, but still, we are already aiming some programs and activity to do with them. And also, we're working closely to a group of volunteers that are called the animators, actually, of these spaces. And these animators are going to learn how to execute and lead this kind of activity. That way, they can repeat them and adjust them according to their own context and inspire themselves to the younger generation after them. The things we were talking with them, and it's not only about design, it's about also about design thinking. And then we're talking about gender equality. We're talking about leadership. We're talking about politics. We're talking about this culture. That way they can be aware of the whole context because if they have more knowledge, they're going to be able to make better decisions by their own. So the animators, they're going to learn something. We're going to leave that valuable assets in these communities. We are already there. We're going to still working with them closely as we move to others' community to replicate the same process. So that way, uh, when we replicate and we have a series of communities, we can create a network of animators around so they can share experiences. They can learn good and bad practices from each other. And that way they can grow themselves and be the change makers a community needs, right? That's fantastic. And Really interesting to hear that they're like interns in a way who are going to take over the job. You're able to keep moving forward. And this group of people come, coming up in, in these different neighborhoods who probably have different challenges and stuff are going to be yes. in connection with one another, um, which I think probably even broadens the scope of their understanding and, and creates a bigger world for them than just being centered strictly in their neighborhood exactly if they know um, how to how to solve problems they can recognize their own problems and solve the, solve them by themselves right so what happened to all this when the pan, when the pandemic yeah struck it was a hard hit for us actually because we were just finishing the spaces like the final touches when the pandemic started starting in El Salvador so we didn't have a chance for the kickoff of the spaces, but still, it was really inspiring how these communities, these youth, self-organized to find a way to help their own community. So they were able to collect food and other basic items in these spaces, and they even organized community foods and cooking to distribute to the less uh, or to the most needed, actually, and, and more vulnerable people in their community. So it was really, really inspiring from them, right? And I think that's a perfect example of when you're not there and you're having to move on to a new community to begin work, that the people who are there are doing it without you yes, and are exactly. making interesting, good, caring decisions without you being there directing them and telling them what to do. Yes, yes. It, it kind of proves our theory, right? Yeah, exactly. This is probably really unfair. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do an Amy Devers and put you totally on the spot. 
<laughs> you worked with so many interesting children and young people in this project. Is there one kid that kind of stands out as special in your heart? Well, yeah, that's a, a really hard question, Jerry. Um, obviously, we met a lot, of, a, a lot of stories with Leo, and each one of them is really special. But there's this kid. His name is Jeffrey. He was really involved since day one. Um, he went to the museum activities, really eager to discover art and, and to hang with, with his friends. But Jeffrey, he's the oldest um, brother of two little sisters, and one day at that at those activities at the museum, he appeared with a scratch on his cheek. We then find out that he got it because his mother had problems with alcohol. So she made that to him once she was drunk because he was protecting one of his little sisters. Um, and that makes us like realize that their context is it's, it's not really fair for a kid of 13 years old, right? He's not supposed to live that at a, a, a such, such young age. But still, he, he always showed to the activities. He was really committed to learning during this process of implementation of the spaces. He was really eager to understand how the, the design and, and the furniture pieces were made. And, and he was eager to be part of it, right? So... I remember also this story once uh, we were installing stuff that he volunteered to make a hole on the wall to put some, some structure. And this Jeffrey, he's really skinny, a bit tall, but he's skinny. So to open the, the wall, the hole at the concrete wall, obviously he had to do a lot of effort with the drill. And after like five or, or six times he tried. We were thinking with Leo, okay, maybe this is too much for him. But he didn't stop. He was like, I can do it, right? I can do it. And, and keep insisting until he made it. He shut out mouth, right? Like, okay, yes, he was able to. So at the time, he learned a lot. And obviously, you could see his face, like, really proud of the space he, he, he helped do. Even, um, sadly, news, his mother got um, in a car accident and, and, and passed away last December. So the, that was before the process of the spaces. So it's still with, with that sad news for him and, and his sister, he started living with his grandmother. Um, he was really full of energy to, to make this change in this space. And, and you could see that he was becoming more, more confident on, on himself and he was more with a more mature attitude toward his sisters, right? So. Obviously, those kind of a story is the reward we get for this kind of project, right? And it makes all worth it and make it all again is what we want, actually. Yeah, that's, that's a really beautiful example of how it's working. You can feel the impact directly on society. Yes. That, that's so powerful that young people just need something. For our community, knowing that that something can be designed, that changes their way of thinking and make make them see the world through a different lens um, is really remarkable. So again, I, I'm so impressed by the work you're doing. If, if anybody else uh, wants to volunteer to uh, help in any way, they, they can contact Roberto. But yes, I mean, as that is story of Jeffrey, you can find a lot of 
other really inspiring stories. And you can see that there's only a lack of opportunities for them. So as designers, we can create these opportunities for them, right? And um, while you're doing that, I'm going to close with a quote from, okay. a very, from a very wise man. And the quote is, design allowed them to visualize a future for themselves that they didn't yeah. dream was possible. And the author of that quote, do you know who it was? It was I don't remember to. <laughs> it, was, yes. it was Roberto. <laughs> when he said that, he goes, design allows them to visualize a future for themselves that they didn't dream was possible. It was kind That's of, true. to me, it was kind of that Jerry Maguire moment you had me at hello. Uh, <laughs> that it was, uh, it, it put it all in great perspective. Yeah. And with this talk with you, it just made me realize that I'm just replicating what this older generation, but not so old, showed me, right? Like, if, if, if they allow me to dream to be on a stage with you at a fair, for example, one day, I could allow somebody else to dream something and they can make it happen. That's beautiful. So, Amy, are you, um, are you ready with the Q&A? I am ready with the Q&A if you guys are ready. Yes. I'm going to start with one from Andre Gutierrez. I'm a design student from Montreal, born in Mexico. I am truly inspired by such beautiful initiatives. My question is, what type of design thinking do you encourage or suggest to future practitioners in order to create meaningful change for those in need? I mean, the, the basic perspective is to believe that before being designers, we are humans and people, right? So the first thing to engage with, with your users or your clients is to see them as people too. So if you're able to design from you as a people to another person as a people, the situation is going to change to see what their basic need is. And obviously all these observations, some interviews with them to really understand what they want. If they don't know what they want, it's really tricky to see it, but as long as you practice, you're able to, to create this skill to understand that even small changes can be really meaningful for all kinds of persons, right? Here's another one from Emily Pellerin. First off, thanks so much for sharing these stories. I'm curious if, in this project's vision, there's future expansion to other countries in Central America. And how do you see that scaling happening in the COVID age? Well, obviously, the situation in El Salvador is really similar to situation in all of Latin America. So obviously, one of the things is that we, we procure during the process is that we can have a, a process that could allow us to replicate this, but on a custom, on a tailored way to each community. Um, so this can be really easily replicated. We were actually on a trip before the pandemic to Tijuana to work with immigrants on some shelters over there where we could replicate the same process with them and how we can give them a shelter for humans, actually. That's really basic, uh, and we sometimes forget about that. So uh, now with this situation of the pandemic, uh, Leo and I, we were start thinking on how these communities are going back to this new normal um, we see ahead. It's really dangerous because obviously there's a lot of people in this community because it's crowded and 
with huge needs to go out and earn money to survive. I mean, there's these kind of people that earns the money the same day that they need it uh, so they can survive. So with the quarantine status we have right now, each day that goes by makes them more eager to go out and, and try to survive by themselves. So we were thinking on this whole context, not only as the youth center, but the whole community and how you can see a bus stop next to your youth center. You can see um, the market also. You can see a lot of people moving around and going out to communities and going back. And they need to go out even if the, if the virus is out there. So we were thinking on protocols. We were thinking on, 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 on furniture to be placed in key points so we can stop the contagious about it. Uh, and there's a lot of opportunity. And once again, it's just to understand how they live and how they move and how they need to survive so we can, so we can design um, solutions and opportunity for them in, in this new normal that is coming. Okay, I have a part two of that question, okay. which is um, what recommendations would you have for designers and creatives here in the States who want to support in similar ways? For example, in New York City, there are certainly communities of children who could benefit from these sorts of programs. Are there existing programs that you recommend looking into that we could lend our efforts and resources to? Well, I don't remember exactly one uh, by name and, and location, but I know for sure there's a lot of, of initiatives around the globe, making their efforts. I think one thing really important to remember is that we are humans, again, and our effort, uh, it only goes as far as we can as we want also. So don't worry if you cannot solve the whole issue. As long as you can solve a, a small thing, that's going to help to solve um, the bigger issue. So get involved in any kind of these initiatives locally, originally if you're able to but as long as you can provide something different from somebody else that is already doing something that's where you're going to make an impact or you, if you can replicate something that it's done somewhere else but you can do it in your city that's going to make a difference so it doesn't matter how big or how small it is it's still a difference you can do right Here's one from Alejandra Michelle. What kind of knowledge we need as young industrial designers in El Salvador if we want to pursue this project of the redesign of spaces for vulnerable individuals? What are the challenges? Well, El Salvador is really particular. Industrial design, uh, it's only um, like 15 years that it's been offered in, in the country. So I'm from the third generation and that allowed me... A, to explore a lot of things. So that's one of the first suggestions. I mean, you just need to explore and, and see what you can do and what you cannot do and still going forward. But definitely we need to understand that what we see at school in these books of design and these iconic chairs, it's really far from our reality in El Salvador that we have a lot of other more important issues like poverty and violence and gangs and other stuff. That obviously the same process that not exactly as to design a chair, but as to design a, a, a solution for a need that can also happen in the context. So start exploring and start um, looking for your interest and also start um, losing fear that maybe your work is not going to work or not. And just do it. At the end, um, you can pivot on the way and you can, you'll find a way as a designer. 
Okay, here's one from Brad Escalon. Hey guys, great hearing from you all. Roberto, how do you see this idea translating for people in different communities or countries and with different societal and cultural issues? What are some roadblocks with an idea like this traveling? I think the the main one is how to replicate efforts in time because obviously the main thing is to get in contact with the with the users. Um, so that can happen in two ways. Either a group of designers travel to that location and might take longer to empathize with them, or you can find local designers that are are really are really aware of what's going on locally and and, and they're gonna empathize with the user faster than a foreigner can do. So one of the roadblocks is that that as foreigners might take longer. And the other is that there's a lot of cultural aspects first from each country, but then from each community. We, we were actually, actually seeing that from one community, we had some inside jokes. Then when we moved to the other community, they didn't make any sense for them. <laughs> so that's one also of the roadblocks. You need to understand not only the, the country, but also inside communities, things going on and, and open this confidence relationship with them. Because if they don't see that you're authentically there and trying to help them, they're going to block you right away. The communities are also known to receive a lot of programs, initiatives, and people that goes in and, and try to understand the problem. But then somehow either the project ends or the budget ends or the social service ends and they are alone again. So once you show that commitment um, and something that worked for us about that is that we were showing up in these other activities. We were showing up at the, the museum. We were showing up at local communities, festivals that they were planning themselves. We were trying to support them in, I don't know, designing a logo for their, for their jelly, locally made jelly, something. These small actions um, builds trust to them. And, and, and since you're aligning to the same objective as them, they let you in and they let you know them and they let you understand what they're going through and that way you can help. So another roadblock might be time again because there, it requires a lot of time and, and effort to connect with them. Here's one from Marjorie Bonilla. Hi, Roberto. You were talking about your question of what an industrial designer must be doing in El Salvador. And now I wonder if that doubt has different answers because of the pandemic and how this situation has made more visible problems to work on. Greets to Amy and Jerry from El Salvador. Actually, I think it's still the same. I mean, uh, a designer in any part of the world, the mission must be to make life better for everyone. So the only thing that changes are the kind of context and problems that these people face, right? It's not the same that now, for example, the, the government blocked all the public transportation, even for the people that has to go to work at a hospital or something else. So it doesn't make sense, right? So um, as long as you can design solution tailored to their needs, it doesn't need to be expensive, but it needs to be really meaningful for them. That's the goal of a designer in a context of El Salvador. And I think it's the future. You can see a lot of problems and a, a lot of bad headlines in the news outside El Salvador that you can transform that problem into an opportunity to, to design a solution, right? 
From Maricela Avalos. Congratulations, Roberto and Leonel. Great project. Hi from El Salvador. What is the impact on design education? How can design programs motivate students to share the same view that you have? Yeah, thank you. One of the main things is, and that something that Contempo is doing also, is that we need to connect the, the university, the education with the real situation in El Salvador. And the real situation is not only meeting other designers, uh, but it's connecting with real problems, connecting to contexts that might maybe from their own context when they grew up and they go to a university, they don't realize it's happening just around the block. So that's one of the main things. And the other things is also to bet on the teachers. I mean, the teachers are the one that can, that can connect and link both worlds and, and bring realities and bring experience to their students. So I think that's key. And also to share experiences within uh, the university. It's a small country in El Salvador, so it's supposed to be easy. Sometimes it's not, but there's hope from different small initiatives that we can connect them and they can share. If we're all solving the same problem at the end, but from different contexts and this different context, um, different skills and toolboxes, we're going to solve it better and faster if we are together. But for that, obviously, it's communication between them and, and a clear objective and view towards the future. Right? Amen. So um, <laughs> another one from uh, Mark Thorpe, and I think this is a really valuable question right now. How can designers in the U.S. help your program specifically? What can we do? How can we contribute? Yeah, I was, I was talking with Jerry that it's not only about money, it's about time and commitment. So actually during the process, we were able locally to bring younger designers into the process so they can, the things I was saying, to connect them with this other reality we are not used to. So uh, definitely that's a talk we, we must have. Um, but we can organize trips to this community to show them, to inspire them. At the end, is we need to show the kids and the community that there's another set of options they can they can apply to and they can they can achieve it if they dream it right so if we can bring people in and show them new skills inspiring them through their stories or helping create another solution that we haven't seen yet uh, that's some ways we can collaborate definitely well do, any last words from you or, or Jerry thank you thank you so much again for having us and um I'm just in awe of what Roberto's doing, and um, I'm really humbled to be able to share the screen with him today. So thank you again. Yeah, thank you all. Um, actually, it's a great job you're doing. Also, the fair as wanted and Design Milk and, and Clever, it's doing a, a great inspirational work over here. And also, that's a tool that give that we have to inspire others, actually. So that's one of the suggestions we have for younger generations to follow these kind of, of content that is really useful. And really, thank you for this opportunity. It, it became a, a dream come true for me. And hopefully we can generate uh, more collaboration between all and, and see you next year in New York. I want to thank the audience so much for joining us here today. We tried to get to all of your questions, but we know there are more. So let's continue the conversation online at Wanted Design on Instagram. Use the hashtag Wanted Conversations. I want to thank Jerry Helling and Roberto Juarez for this compelling dialogue and for the good work you're doing in the world. 
Thank you to Design Milk. And of course, huge thanks to Claire Pijula and Odile Eno, <laughs> the organizers of Wanted Design and this conversation series. As promised, here's a special bonus, a short interview with curator and founder of the Spirit of Poland Foundation, Monica Bronch, who, along with the Polish Cultural Institute New York and Wanted Design, has organized Polki Hidden Power, an online exhibition featuring female Polish illustrators and designers with works that allude to the subject of womanhood and seek out traces of the feminine hidden power. Here's Monica. My name is Monika Pancz. I'm from Poland and I live in Sopot, which is the city in the north of Poland by the sea on the Polish coast. Uh, and I've been working with design for the last 13 years uh, doing uh, different things. I started off with the product design, but actually these days I'm working more with the exhibitions and also with the social design. Or It's more like design for social impact for some social change. That's amazing. There is this wonderful art exhibition online right now that you curated called Polky Hidden Power. Can you tell me about this exhibition? Like, what is the central theme? What are the artists and designers included? And what kinds of works are on view? We uh, came up with this idea of creating this exhibition two years ago. And it happened because, as I mentioned, I work with the exhibitions uh, and uh, and we also have a foundation called the Spirit of Poland. And the aim of the foundation is to promote Polish designers uh, worldwide. So we had the opportunity to apply to organize another exhibition and apply for the grant. And the grant is actually called Independent and it was set up because the 100th anniversary of Poland getting the independence. I'm not going to talk about the history, but it's quite important and quite related to this exhibition. So we organized this exhibition as part of the independent program. And when Poland got the independence 100 years ago, uh, actually the one of the first things that happened was uh, giving the electoral rights to women. Uh, so it happened in, in 1918 about 100 years ago, before the United States, because in the United States it was it was in 1920. When I started studying this subject, when we were thinking about uh, creating the new exhibition, I thought, wow, it's, it's really interesting that female rights, they only exist in the world more or less for 100 years. And that means that before that, women had to had like very different position in the society. We know that, but we don't often think about it, that in the history, it's all, only 100 years then the position of the women started changing. And when we thought about it, and we were discussing that with my colleague Avelina, which is one of the artists in this exhibition, but also the co-curator of this exhibition, we thought it, that it would be really interesting to look at the female art through the subject of the hidden power, the power that was like the force for the women to fight about their rights in the society, and which still is this force, because as we know, the position of the women is still not equal in the world. The women still have to fight for their rights in many places in the world, but also in our countries where the female rights are pretty established, we still have to fight for certain things. So we thought, okay, if, if the female rights are so limited... That means that women have to have some special hidden powers and therefore they have to express these powers in their arts. So we thought, okay, that will be the key for creating this exhibition. And the name of the exhibition is Polki Hidden Power. Polki meaning Polish women. 
And the hidden power relates to the hidden power of the artists. And we ask them about their own definition of the hidden power. The idea was to select some words which will well represent uh, this subject. How do they express uh, this uh, inner power, inner strength that they have? And also the pieces that somehow are like really strong pieces of art that express this like feminine point of view. Uh, and we invited uh, nine designers to participate in this exhibition. They all bring their own definitions, like different point of view. They use different techniques. They work in different materials because we have graphic designers or the illustrators. And we also have the designers like working with ceramics. So these are the works presented in this exhibition. And actually, uh, this is the uh, fourth edition of this exhibition. And this edition is very different because in the past we just had the normal installation presenting the works. This year, because of COVID, uh, we had to do it online. And because of that, we decided to do some short films presenting the profiles of each artist. So in the films, they talk about themselves. They talk about who they are, they talk about like what drives them, what motivates them, about the inspirations. And I have to say that even for me, even though I've seen these exhibitions so many times and I know the work so well, it was like a nice and surprising thing to find out even more about the artists and about their lives. I have to say this, that it's quite inspiring and I really encourage to, to have a look at the films. I agree. I felt like the the work itself was very strong and uh, I had a, this gravitational pull towards it because it feels so deeply honest, mm -hmm. but not self-important in this way. I think that's probably, we can talk about hidden power and feminine strength in a little bit, but those films were such a deepening of the intimacy I felt mm -hmm. to be able to connect with the artist and to get a window into their process and their personality and connect it to the work that they make, I think added a lot of depth and richness to the whole exhibition. So I was really engaged by those films. It's nice to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so you've explained why the exhibition came about and the history of independence in Poland. And I know that female rights are something that we are always needing to fight for and to protect. Why do you think this work is so relevant and so resonant at this particular moment in time? I think there are like different levels to answer this question. The first level is that, I mean, this exhibition, when you first look at it, it's actually kind of colorful and joyful, and you don't think about any second meaning. But on this level, it's like, I would say it's like quite inspirational, almost like inspiring you to like create something, to think about certain issues. And I think like actually in this particular moment that we are in, dealing with the new issue, which is COVID, uh, it's something that even when I was watching the films, it gave me some like extra inspirations and strength. And I was thinking, okay, like, wow, I just find it so interesting that this artist talk about this, talks about this aspect. And this aspect, it's something I can relate to. So I think on this level, it just gives us some new ideas to think about, some things to get inspired with. And I think this is, this is quite an important thing. This exhibition doesn't have like any second meaning. We are talking about like the hidden power of uh, of the ladies. But then when we look at the particular 
wars of the artists, then you see that for them, the definition of the hidden power is like different in each case. I think this is also like very important issue because you can see that some of the artists, they are really uh, involved in, let's say, the feminine movements or they are really like socially involved or engaged. And I think this is also something really important because I think the change always starts from the individual people. And when you see that other people are involved, it also gives you the courage and that gives you uh, some kind of encouragement uh, to think about it in your life and, and get involved as well. So I think in that respect, it's uh, it's really important as well. I agree. It's a catalyst of sorts, but particularly when it's coming, when it's emanating from the feminine, it's got a more nurturing guidance to it, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. I'd love for you to let me in a little bit to your curatorial process Conceiving of this exhibition and selecting the works, what was that like? The idea was to, first of all, to work with the contemporary Polish uh, designers and illustrators uh, that are women. So that was the first limitation. <laughs> Not limitation, but but in that per- way that parameter. It, narrowed the, yeah, it narrowed the subject that we are working with. Okay. And also another thing was that we have to work particularly with the women that refer to the subject in their art. So uh, having this, let's say, narrow path, it wasn't actually that much of a challenge because, I mean, I've been working with, like, different exhibitions with design for, like, a couple of years now. So more or less I know what, what we have in the Polish design scene and from what you can select. So, so I would say the selection process itself wasn't, wasn't like that much of a challenge, but the idea was, of course, to choose and to pick up different works. Uh, the works which are kind of relating to the subject of feminine strength in different uh, way. So we have the works which are like, I would say, more ironic, using more sense of humor, being almost sarcastic. Mm-hmm. We have the works which are like more, I would say, like a personal statement where the artists are relating to certain feelings that they have. We have the works that are like, I would say, illustration of certain conditions. And we have works which are like the artistic interpretation as well. But the common thing is is the subject of of the femininity in, in, in their art. So yeah, the, the selection process, I would say, it, it just happened naturally. We just selected from... What we knew, it will will be good and representative for for the subject. Well, and the the subject matter, the, the hidden power, feminine mm-hmm. strength, the works that you chose. I think you've touched on a few descriptors that were really evocative. There is, you know, humor and sarcasm. There is a kind of clarity and intimacy, and and it's even quite joyful, as you as you mentioned at the top of the interview. The multitudes of feminine strength are expressed in this exhibition in so many ways. And while strength itself is not specific to females, feminine strength is often sort of under-recognized by culture and especially in all of its multi-dimensions. So can you describe maybe in more detail some of the specific examples of feminine strength in the specific works and maybe some that you found so resonant? Yeah, I actually agree with you that the feminine strength is uh, somehow not recognized enough. 
And actually, it's, I think it's still is a very important subject to explore. And actually, when we look at this exhibition, maybe I will go through the artists. Yeah. It would be good to, yeah, to talk about them as well. Let's start with um, Isabella Kaczmarek-Szurek. Uh, she's uh, representing the brand Sunday is Monday. And the work that we present in this exhibition, they are actually created for this, uh, for this brand, Sunday is Monday. Uh, and uh, this is the brand ded- dedicated to uh, yoga. Uh, so actually the posters, they are like interpretation of uh, different uh, yoga positions, uh, but they are kind of sarcastic and ironic interpretation. And this is uh, trying to find some balance between trying to be fit and exercise and between the all the duties that the women have on daily basis. Like they really trying to be fit, but at the same time they have so many things to do that they trying to find this balance. And this balance is sometimes like a little bit of a joke. <laughs> so this is what is yeah, really well reflected in the posters uh, when you kind of gave up and end up finding your balance in a glass of wine or something like that, or trying to find the balance with the child on your hand or something like that. So I really like this interpretation that Isabella made because I think it really reflects exactly how you feel sometimes when you're trying to find the stable position and attitude in the crazy world around you. Uh, and so when we talk about the ironic approach, another artist uh, using, uh, I would say, lots of irony and sense of humor in her works is uh, Sabina Samulska. She uses that in a very different way. Her characters, they are like really exaggerated. They are almost funny postures. And when you look at the women, you think, okay, this is not the women look like, but at the (laughs) same time, you can relate to that because it's really like uh, certain things like the wage or like public hair or something like that. This is something that she shows in her works in, in a really uh, kind of funny and ironic uh, manner. And uh, also there is a little bit of the irony in the works of Evelina Skowrońska, in the works called uh, Shaving Girls. Evelina is more like a visual artist, but I think the ceramic figures that she did, the Shaving Girls, it really is like a nice comment to like today's reality when you think that shaving becomes some kind of a another um, daily task that you have to do. And it's not maybe daily, but but regular. And uh, the little ceramic figures, they are really like nice, iconic representation of today's reality. Mm -hmm. And then also in the exhibition, we have uh, Basia Grzybowska-Flores. And I think Basia is... Her illustrations, they are, uh, I would say, like the result of her thoughts and her like uh, definition and research what it means to be a woman. And I think she is quite literate, like relating to certain things, like, for example, Me Too movement uh, and uh, movements like that, that, that are really like that are very much connected with feminism. Mm-hmm. In the exhibition, we also have the artist. Uh, Magdalena Pankiewicz. She is, uh, like, her illustrations, they are, like, uh, more, I would say, direct, literate. And in the exhibition, we are showing the summer series, which is relating to the uh, idea of, like, swimming and and relaxing. And it's actually quite interesting, because when we are showing the posters in the exhibitions, many people were coming and saying, wow, I want this poster because this is exactly how I feel like. I like this moment of reflection 
I like this moment when I'm doing certain things and I can just think about my life. And this is exactly like the description of the work as well. So it really somehow allows people to refer to that. <laughs> and uh, another artist is Alexandra Moraviak. She's using this, uh, she's making those beautiful collages. Uh, and she, I would say she really mastered this uh, this technique. And the collages, they are like, uh, I would say, more pieces of art. There's no direct message here. But you can see it's like very feminine. She's often using the images of the women and, and also some patterns uh, like pieces of nature of objects, which are like really well connected with, with those uh, female images. Uh, we are also presenting the series uh, Great Inventors, created by Kaya Kustra. And Great Inventors is a collection of the porcelain uh, designed for uh, the, the Christoph company. And uh, in this collection, she's uh, showing the great inventors that, that were like... Uh, really important for the science. And actually, it's interesting that many of them were women. So Kaya created those beautiful illustrations of the images of those women that are applied to ceramics. And another ceramist that we have in the exhibition is Malvina Konopatska, and her vases, her, her vase uh, called Oko, which means I. And this is also the reflection on the family life from the female perspective. It's actually, she's uh, one of the artists that mainly focuses on this form, which are the vases and the, and the porcelain totems. And actually in her career, she's just like developing this, those interpretations of the, of the vases together with, with her children. Actually, there is like lots of interpretation of the forms that she uh, does, uh, like getting her, her kids involved or like kind of co-creating with them and, and creating some, some nice uh, works. And we have uh, Maria Jeglinska as well. And her pieces are more like the uh, strong pieces, just, just representing nice, uh, nice, strong patterns, which are like quite, quite feminine as well. So this is the selection of the artists that we have. And, um, yeah, talking about this strength that you mentioned uh, and this means, this artistic means that they're using, like the humor and clarity and intimacy, I think you can really see them in this work. And I would not say they are like specific to female, but uh, we can see this feminine interpretation done by, by those particular artists. And I think it's it's quite personal. I think what the hidden power title is so evocative because these are things that are that are sort of innate in the feminine experience. And so our strength in terms of moving mountains has come from these multitudes of smaller strengths that we bind together collectively and express in ways that are not hugely calling attention to themselves. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And actually, I think a nice comment to that is the text that we have as a leading text for the exhibition that was written by Carol Fluckinger. She's a professor of arts from School of Arts from Texas Tech University. And the school was also hosting this exhibition two years ago. And what Carol said in the text that she wrote for this exhibition, when after she'd seen the work, she said that actually the exhibition is about intimacy of small everyday individual conditions such as body hair 
weight gain, meditation, child rearing, or houseplants. But these subjects are elevated as an experience worth of unapologetic expression. And it reminds of a courage it takes to recognize the overlooked, and this is hidden power. So I really like how Carol phrased that, because mm-hmm. I think it exactly describes that uh, actually those hidden powers, they are like small things, but they are elevated to a very different level through the artworks. Well, thank you so much for talking to us in depth about this exhibition. And I just want to let our listeners know that this exhibition is on view until December 15th, 2020. And to learn more about the artists, go to wanteddesignnyc.com slash polky-hidden-power. And of course, we will include that link in the show notes. I would like to mention that the exhibition is financed from the program Independent, uh, which is the founder of the Ministry of Culture and the National Heritage of Poland. Uh, and it's part of the Cultural Bridges uh, subsidiary program of Adam Mickiewicz Institute, which has been supporting this exhibition from the very beginning. And this interview came about for the Polish Cultural Institute in New York, which is the partner of the exhibition, and that was helping us a lot with the promotion of this event. All of these works will be available for sale in the store? That's right, yeah. We are organizing a pop-up store together with Wanted Design IC store. So the Wanted Design Festival, they also have the store in, in, in Industry City. City in Brooklyn. Yeah. So in the IC store... The exhibition will be on a little show and for sale in December this year. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing about the exhibition, about your process, and for describing in such vivid detail these gorgeous works and exposing us to all of these artists that I'm so happy that we know about now. Thank you so much, Amy. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening. The Polky Hidden Power Exhibition is organized by the Spirit of Poland Foundation and Wanted Design NY in partnership with the Polish Cultural Institute New York. It is on view until December 15, 2020 at wanteddesignnyc.com slash polki, that's P-O-L-K-I, dash hidden dash power. To learn more about Roberto Juarez, Lero Studio, and his work with the Flashlight Collective, read the show notes. You can click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It really does help a lot. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Laura Jaramillo, and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.